0: Good morning again, friends. Welcome to the Oceanside Sanctuary and welcome to our online Sunday gathering for worship. We have been going through a teaching series called American Gods where we are exploring the various ways that in the church and in our own lives as Americans, we sometimes fall prey too easily to propping up other things as our gods other than Christ Himself, And so today, I want to continue that series. Last week, we talked about nationalism and how oftentimes it's very easy to conflate our faith with our citizenship as Americans in this country. Today, I want us to talk about a more difficult topic, a topic that is uncomfortable, especially for people who look like me, people who are white like me. We're going to talk about racism. And so I want to invite you to settle in, and prayerfully uh, enter into this moment today where I'm gonna unpack a little bit of scripture and then we're gonna talk about some of the realities that are deeply uncomfortable, especially for those of us who benefit from a racialized society like the one we live in in the United States. Before we jump into that, I wanna ask that you would pray with me and during this moment of prayer together, I wanna ask that you would really settle your heart and turn it towards God and be genuinely open to whatever God might have to say to all of us today. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you again for this opportunity for all of us to gather in worship, to uh, enter together into that holy space where we proclaim that you and your teachings and your word through the person and work of Jesus Christ really make up everything that we organize our lives around. That's what it means for us to worship God. We, we take everything that is good and right and true as revealed in Christ, and we make that the center of our lives. No matter what our desires are, no matter what our hopes and dreams might be, no matter what our biases or prejudices might be, we sit before you with our hearts laid open and ready to receive whatever good thing that you have to give us. Today, I ask that you would share something good with us, that somehow uh, this passage that we read and somehow my words would accurately reflect your heart of love for all people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you have, have heard this story before, and for those of you who have, just, just bear with me. I apologize in advance, but it's one of these stories that has really shaped my life and really affected the way that I view the world that I live in. And some of you know that several years ago, I uh, was not in ministry for a period of time. For about five years, I was out of ministry work. And during that time, I was really privileged and honored to be working in the nonprofit sector I worked for and with a couple of different organizations that were doing really good and important work in the community. And one of those was a social services agency based right here in North San Diego County. And my job at that agency was really to work with the community, was to interact with faith communities like ours here at the Oceanside Sanctuary. It was to interact with volunteers, and interact with donors and help them to get behind the work that our agency was doing to help those who were poor and struggling, and we had a couple of different locations in North County, and one of those was right here in Oceanside, in fact, it's right down the hill from where I live right now here in Fire Mountain. And at that particular service center, most of it was run by volunteers, but of all the volunteers who were there every single day, helping people who were struggling, helping people to get back on their feet, one of them was one of those volunteers who just was sort of in charge, in fact, uh, and, and you've probably seen this before where somebody comes in and just sort of through, through the force of their personality, they just become sort of the, the center of all the activity that's happening. And Jillian was one of those volunteers. She was there four days a week, Monday through Thursday. She had her own cubicle and from that cubicle, as a volunteer, a full-time volunteer, Jillian, who was a woman in her late 70s, was pouring her life out for people who were in need. And I would visit that particular service center and every time I did, I would go and I'd sit down in Jillian's cubicle and we'd have a nice little chat and she was one of those fiery older women who wouldn't let me get away with anything. So she would give me a hard time and she would tease me and she'd rib me a little bit and she would give me a hard time about the decisions that were being made at the corporate headquarters that, you know, my office was at and we would have a a good time relating uh, to each other around some of the things that we were doing in that organization. One day, I came into that particular service center right down the hill from here and sat down at Jillian's cubicle and we got to talking. And at one point she said, Where do you live? You know, just being personable, asking, you know, information about me. And I said, Well, you know, actually, I, I live really close to here. I just live right up this hill in uh, this neighborhood here called Fire Mountain. Jillian said, Oh, yeah, I know Fire Mountain. That's a, that's a really nice neighborhood. You're really fortunate to live there. And, I said, yeah, that's, that's true. It is a nice neighborhood, and we really enjoy the neighborhood, and we're really blessed to be there. And she said, yeah, my husband and I tried to buy a house in Fire Mountain back in the 50s, but they wouldn't let us. I said, well, what do you mean they wouldn't let you? Who, who wouldn't let you buy a house, Jillian? And she said, well, you know, the Neighborhood Association, that was sort of the informal group of neighbors who who lived there, made sure that, you know, we couldn't get a loan to buy a house in that neighborhood. (laughs) I said, Jillian, what are you, what do you mean they wouldn't let you get a loan? I I don't understand what you're saying. And and she said, well, you know, back then that was a white neighborhood and, you know, they wouldn't lend money to black families to live there and move in there. I, I just had no idea how to respond to Jillian, of course because Jillian was a, a black woman in her late 70s who was telling me something that honestly I just couldn't comprehend and couldn't understand. But of course what she was talking about is something that, that's public knowledge, something that we often don't learn about in school, it was something called redlining. This was the practice in the United States of zoning off certain areas in cities and suburbs and neighborhoods around the country to make sure that the right people lived in the right neighborhoods and the wrong people lived in the neighborhoods that were designated for them. And we call this redlining now because this practice, which began in the mid thirties with the creation of the FHA, this practice literally color coded inner city areas and suburbs and rural towns, literally color-coded neighborhoods to make sure that people of color didn't end up in neighborhoods with white folks, and that white folks, as much as possible, didn't end up in neighborhoods with people of color. This was an intentional set of policies that were practiced on the part of the federal government through FHA rules and FHA laws, through local savings and loans and banks who abided by these sorts of guidelines and by insurance companies who are also pushing this to make sure that property values were accurately and carefully curated and taken care of to protect the wealth of white families who purchased homes in those areas. This is is not a controversial statement that I'm making. Redline is something that we all know about. It started in the 30s and extended all the way into the 1980s and we are still dealing with the social effects of redlining. Because if you are like me, if, if you're a white American and you own a home, one thing that you probably know is that the very best way to build wealth as an American in the United States is to buy a home. It's to own property. Real estate is part of the American dream. It's one of the ways that we help people climb the social ladder and gain a little bit of financial security in their lives. But when we intentionally segregated neighborhoods through lending practices and through uh, the discouragement of people of color buying and renting in white neighborhoods, one of the things that we did was we guaranteed that families of color didn't have access to those same wealth building tools. As a result of just this one set of policy practices, we have a kind of ripple effect of racism in our society to this day. In fact, the wealth gap between white families and black families is so enormous in the United States that white net worth, the typical white family's net worth is 10 times the size of the typical black family's net worth. The median net worth of the American white family is about $170,000. And that probably makes sense if the typical white family owns a kind of middle-class home. Much of their wealth is invested in the value of their home. But the typical black family, by contrast, their net worth is only about $17,000. Think about that incredible gap. That's not the only statistic that we have to illustrate that we have a racist outcomes problem in the United States. For example, we know that related to that, that black families are twice as likely to live below the poverty line than white families. We also know that black people have higher rates of Poor health, health outcomes as well. This is not just an issue of wealth. It's also an issue that infects all of our institutions, including our health institutions. So, for example, black individuals have much higher rates of heart disease. They have much higher rates of hypertension, much higher rates of diabetes. We know, for example, that here in San Diego, a report just came out this week, that said that even though black people make up about 6% of the population in San Diego County, that black people make up about 22% of the homeless population in San Diego County. And maybe the starkest difference that we can see, the harshest symptom of, of systemic racism that we can see in our society, society today is in our addiction to incarceration for people who are convicted of crimes. In the United States of America, if you are white, if you're a white man in the United States, then you there is a one in 17 chance that you will end up in prison at some point in your lifetime. So one in 17 white men will go to prison at some point in the United States if our current rates of incarceration continue. That is much worse if you are Hispanic. A, a, a Hispanic man is likely, uh, has a one in six chance of ending up in prison someday. But even that is not nearly as bad if you're a black man. In the United States, one in three, one in three black men are likely to end up in prison at some point in their lifetime. My friends, these outcomes, these realities of our society are so stark, they're so harsh, They're so counterbalanced unfairly against people of color and especially against black people in America that I think there are only two conclusions that you could possibly come to when you're asking yourself why it is that black people in America and people of color in general have such poor outcomes in our society. And those two possible conclusions are totally opposed to each other. The first possible conclusion is that the reason that people of color in general and black people especially have such poor outcomes is because there is something inherently intrinsically wrong with black people. Now that of course is a racist choice and it is an option that many people choose. Many people do believe that there is something inherently wrong with black people in this country. Many people believe that there is something inherently wrong with black communities, that everything that's terrible that happens to them all of these harsh unequal outcomes are somehow individual black people's faults but we know that that isn't true because we know that there is no biological difference between people of color and people who are white there is no genetic difference between people of color and people who are white you cannot identify any biological reality that makes people of color different than white folks. We know that race, as we discuss it, as we categorize it, in the United States is rather not a biological construct, it's a social construct. That we have together as a society categorized people according to the shade of their skin. And we have therefore created These sort of pockets of society that have different outcomes and that leads us to our second choice. If the problem is not that there is something inherently wrong with people of color, then the only other choice is that there is something inherently wrong with our society as a whole. That there's something about our culture, there's something about our social relationships, there's something about our institutions that continues to perpetuate these kinds of inequalities. Now, I know this has been a little bit of a long introduction, but I wanted to set the stage for something that Jesus says in the Gospels. If you would with me just open up to the book of Luke, Uh, I want to visit a familiar passage from the book of Luke chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 4. If you don't have your Bible, we're going to go ahead and put this up on the screen for you. But Luke chapter four, starting in verse 16, is this familiar story of Jesus, who at the beginning of his ministry goes to a local synagogue, and he goes in for worship and he sits down. And there is of course a daily reading in the synagogue. And Jesus gets up as one of the local rabbis, as a young emerging rabbi in his community, he gets up to participate in the daily reading of the synagogue. And we're gonna pick up that story in verse 16, Luke chapter four, verse 16. Says this When he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it's written The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to let the oppressed go free. Verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say to them, "'Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing.'" That is a remarkable passage at the beginning of Jesus's ministry because, of course, Jesus exists at a time when his people, the Jewish people in the ancient Near East in the first century, were also an ethnic group that were experiencing terrible outcomes in their lives as a result of a kind of captivity or a kind of oppression. So imagine this. Imagine that in a religious assembly, a religious gathering of people who we would today consider to be black. People with very dark skin who have been subjugated and oppressed and inhabited by an invading foreign force from a European area. The Romans who moved into that area in the ancient Near East were an occupying force. Jesus, in that particular cultural setting, where there is a a foreign imperial army that has taken over their culture, taken over their land, Jesus gets up in one of their religious assemblies, and he reads this passage, which comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61. And the reason this passage is so remarkable and so appropriate for Jesus to read on that day is because Isaiah 61 is also about an ancient ethnic Jewish people who have been captive or oppressed by a foreign empire. Only in Isaiah 61, the foreign empire isn't the Romans, the foreign empire is the Babylonians. You see, Isaiah, the whole prophetic book of Isaiah, is written from this perspective, that God is promising to his people that in spite of the sins of their past, in spite of the wrongdoings that they have committed, that he is going to bring liberation to them from their Babylonian captors. And so Jesus, existing in a time when the Romans are an occupying force, when the Romans are uh, captive and oppressors to the people of Israel, the ancient people of that particular place and time, Jesus opens up a scroll from another time of captivity, another time of expression of oppression, and he reads this, this incredible passage, that the good news has come. The good news has been fulfilled on that day. And that good news is a news of liberation and freedom from those very captors, from those very oppressors. And he says to them, this has been fulfilled in your hearing today. Now in doing this, Jesus is tapping into the beating heart of what it means for Jews to be people of God. And the beating heart of that Jewishness, the beating heart of Judaism for that time and that place, including today, up until this very time, is a message of liberation. It's a message of freedom, not the kind of individual freedom, the kind of individual liberty that we sort of talk about and obsess about here in the United States. It's a freedom and a liberty for a people as a whole. And it's not a freedom and a liberty to, you know, buy conspicuous goods or a freedom and a liberty to do whatever we want to with our leisure time. It's not the freedom and the liberty to create businesses and become conspicuously wealthy. It's not the freedom and the liberty that allows us to go out in public during a global pandemic and refuse to wear a mask. It's not that kind of personal license. It's freedom and liberty from an invading force that captures an entire group of people and oppresses them and enslaves them. That distinction is incredibly important because here in the United States we we have a hard time, I think, of conceptualizing freedom as anything more than individual license to do whatever we want. But Jesus is tapping into this ancient Jewish gospel about freedom, for an entire people who are tired of suffering, who are tired of being oppressed, who are tired of being subjugated at the whims of an invading army. And it should be no surprise that this is the beating heart of the, the ancient Jewish message because even before Jesus spoke these words in the midst of a Roman captivity, even before Isaiah spoke his words, because of a Babylonian captivity. If you reach back farther, the people of God that we read about in the Old Testament, they were literally formed as a people out of captivity to the ancient Egyptians. And so the heart of the Jewish story is a heart of liberation and freedom from oppression and slavery and captivity. It's where we get the entire Exodus message. It's where we get our own practice of communion as Christians. We've inherited this gospel of liberation and freedom from oppression. It's the beating heart, not just of the Jewish message, it's the beating heart of our message as Christians. And I think it's a much better explanation for why we see the kinds of uh, ethnic and racial outcome disparities that we see in the United States. I think it just doesn't make any reasonable sense for us, for example, to claim that all the problems that the black community faces, that all the problems that the Hispanic community faces are simply the result of their own individual and personal moral failings, their own bad choices, uh, their own capitulation to a culture that that isn't healthy. I, I think that those explanations are not only racist, they just don't make good sense. I think that when we live in a society that 400 years ago, imported black people from their native lands for the purpose of enslaving them so that white people in this country could build wealth on the backs of black bodies. And then after that, we fought a bloody civil war over it. And after that, we continued to terrorize black lives and black people through groups like the KKK and continued to segregate black people through policies like redlining and continue to segregate black people through laws about miscegenation, for example, or laws about segregation, and continued to use policies like laws in the South around Jim Crow laws and policies, and continued to subjugate and withhold access to goods and wealth and property for an entire group of people, then it's just no wonder that at this time, in 2020, we are still dealing with the outcome of 400 years of racist practices and racist policies and racist institutions in the United States. It's no wonder that in this country, we are still 50 years after the last civil rights movement, still dealing with these kinds of horrific racial practices and outcomes. And in this country, we are struggling right now with what we do about that. How do we respond to this? And I think as Christians, there are three ways that God is calling us to respond at a time like this. And one of those ways is for us to simply learn about these realities. And one of the things that I love about the Oceanside Sanctuary, one of the things I love about all of you in our community of faith, is that we are a church that is not afraid to learn. We're a church that isn't afraid to expose ourselves to ideas and opinions and beliefs and proposals that that might be ideas that we disagree with. We're willing to wrestle with those issues, we're willing to wrestle with those thoughts, we're willing to wrestle with those arguments without throwing each other under the bus, without uh, disconnecting from each other as uh, uh, friends and fellow followers of Christ. We embrace part of our vocation as Christians to be lifelong, ongoing learners. Today, I wanna invite you to continue to learn more about these realities around racism in the United States. And there are two opportunities that I wanna extend to you. The first is, for this series for American Gods, I have been hosting a series of conversations with other clergy colleagues to talk about each of these topics. And some of you were able to watch last week's conversation with a group of clergy that I hosted about nationalism in the church. And this week, I'm inviting you to sit in and peek over our shoulder as I talk to some colleagues about racism. Now this is a, a deep and emotional and difficult topic. So it's a long conversation. It's about an hour and a half long. It's on our website. Uh, on our Learning Lab page. If you just go to Media and click on Learning Lab, you'll see our latest uh, Faithful Conversation. It's Faithful Conversation number two. And that conversation is between me and some fellow clergy, uh, a diverse group of people who talk about racism and particularly racism in the church. Uh, And so if that's your your cup of tea, if you're interested in a little bit deeper immersion in some of the realities around racism in the church and some theological talk about that, I want to invite you to listen in on that conversation when you have time this week. The second thing I want to invite you to do around this idea of learning more is our Justice Works team here at the Oceanside Sanctuary is beginning to move in the direction of some Uh, learning and education and training around becoming anti-racist. And our very first uh, initiative is to start a short-term learning group around a reading of the book called Rethinking Incarceration. This is a Christian perspective on one of the biggest issues Uh, of race in our society, and that is mass incarceration. And so if you are interested in educating yourself more about these realities from a Christian perspective, I wanna invite you to join that reading group. It's gonna last for three weeks uh, every Friday, starting on July 31st, the last Friday of this month. You can go to our website at oceansidesanctuary.org and RSVP, just go to the calendar, And click on that learning group and fill out the little RSVP form. And you can be a part of our Zoom learning group to read through this text and then wrestle with some of those issues. And then out of that learning group, my hope is that we will begin to implement some systematic programs of education about becoming more anti-racist as members of our faith community. So that's the first thing we can learn. That's one thing that we can do to overcome this problem in our community, in our society. The second thing that we can do, of course, is we can act. And the purpose of learning is to then be equipped to take action against these kinds of problems in our society. And we can take action in any number of ways. A really simple thing that you can do to take action is, next time you hear somebody say something that is racist or tell a racist joke or make a disparaging remark about people of color, you can simply not stay silent. And I know that this takes incredible courage, especially when oftentimes these are family members who tell racist jokes or make racist comments but we can do this in ways that don't necessarily incite a huge conflict. I've found a few phrases really helpful when people around me make racist comments. For example, sometimes when somebody says something disparaging about people of color, I'll simply say, that's not true. That's not true. I, I could even say it with a bit of a sense of, of humor, right? Oh, that's not true. Right? Or I just don't believe that. These are the kinds of phrases that don't have to open you up to a fight. They don't have to open you up to an argument. You don't have to get into it with that person. In fact, if they want to get into it with you, you can simply stop them and say, I'm really not interested in discussing it. I just wanna make sure you know that that's not true. And you can leave it at that. But of course, acting can be more than just uh, refusing to tolerate racist speech from your friends or family or neighbors. Acting can mean taking actions to ensure that these kinds of systemic practices that perpetuate racist outcomes in our society come to an end. And that of course is where our Justice Works team comes in. We are engaged uh, with organizing efforts in San Diego to help make sure that laws and policies are changed so that we can continue to make slow progress towards the creation of a more good and just society. And so if you're interested in being involved in those kinds of actions, our church is heavily involved in that. You can go to the Justice Works page on our website and just fill out the little form that says that you're interested in more information about Justice Works, and we will loop you into all of the actions that are coming up that you can be engaged in that will help you make a difference. But the first of those, I'll just say this very briefly, the first of those, of course, is that you can vote. We have a huge national election coming up. And it's not just an election for the presidency of the United States. It's also going to be a down ticket election for all kinds of positions at the state level and the city level and the county level. And you as an American have a voice in those elections. And of course, as a church, we are nonpartisan. We are not a Republican church or a Democrat church or a libertarian church. And we don't advocate for partisan politics of any kind. But here's what we can do and what we will do do. As Christians, we will advocate for policies that help those who are poor and oppressed and captive to systems in our society that continue to crush them and keep them down. And so I would simply encourage you, whatever your political affiliation is, I don't care if you're conservative or liberal uh, or whatever your political lineup might be, I don't particularly care. I think that you can be a Christian and be a conservative or a liberal or a libertarian or whatever it is that you might be and exercise your politics in a virtuous way. But here's the key to that. I think as Christians, we have an obligation to vote for those who are oppressed and those who are captive to those systems in our society. So, this coming election, one one action you can take, one very practical action you can take, is to vote as though you were a person of color, even if you're not. How does your, your vote impact the well-being and the flourishing and the lives of those in our community who consistently face racist outcomes every single day? Now, the other thing we can do is really the first thing that we can do. So, we can not only learn, we can act, but beyond learning and acting, there's something that I think comes before either of those things, and that is a deeply Christian thing that we can do, and that is we can repent. In fact, I would go so far as to say as a pastor that our learning and our actions will have very little value and very very little lasting value impact unless it begins with us from a heart of repentance. And, and repenting, of course, is what it means to be a Christian. And when I say that we all need to repent, I don't mean that you or I are individually, as human beings, that we are racist in the sense that we hate people who are people of color. I know that you don't hate people who are poor or hate people who are part of a minority group. repentance can mean more than just the individual sentiments that we have in our hearts. Repentance can mean recognizing that we are part of a bigger system, part of a bigger culture, part of a bigger society that is contributing to these problems. And that requires our repentance as well. When we recognize that we are by our silence or by our refusal to change the status quo, we are complicit in a system that produces racist outcomes, then we are guilty in that sense, and we are required, as followers of Christ, to repent of that complicity, to repent of that silence. You know, there's a passage in Scripture that talks exactly about these kinds of realities— uh, the realities that extend beyond just our own personal flesh and blood complicity as people who might have racist sentiments. And that passage is a familiar one. It's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. And it says, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesians. Paul says, "...for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and evil and wickedness in high places." One of the reasons I love that passage is because Paul so powerfully and vividly captures the reality that sin is a much bigger problem than the personal problems we have in our hearts. Sin extends beyond the flesh and blood reality of individuals. It extends beyond the flesh and blood reality of our own personal attitudes and personal beliefs and personal feelings. Sin is invisible and systemic. The sin that begins in the human heart infects and extends into all our cultural institutions and all our cultural practices. That doesn't mean that culture is bad, but it does mean that sin is such a severe problem that it infects all of those invisible realities as well. I love how the theologian Walter Wink put this in talking about this very reality in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. Walter Wink says personal redemption cannot take place apart from the redemption of our social structures. And of course what he means by that is that as Christians it's not enough that our individual hearts are changed. Those social structures those institutions that are not made of flesh and blood, those cultural practices and attitudes and postures and beliefs and outcomes that are not flesh and blood, those are broken and sinful as well. And those exert far more power to crush people and neighborhoods and communities than just my own individual attitudes and actions ever could. And so when we talk about redemption as Christians, we don't just talk about redeeming the human heart We're talking about redeeming the entire system of human social structures and cultural constructs. That is our responsibility as followers of Christ to do just that. And it begins, again, I say, with repentance. It begins with taking seriously that act of turning and going in the other direction. Today, what I want to do is invite you into a time of repentance. This should be as natural for Christians, this act of repenting, and just admitting that we are both consciously and unconsciously complicit in sin. That admission of guilt should be as natural for Christians as admitting addiction is for people who go to AA. The church is not a place where we come and pretend that we are totally clean. It is a place where we come because we recognize that we're not clean and we need to be liberated from our own individual complicity in these kinds of sins. That's what the practice of communion is all about. And so in our church, when we practice communion, every single time we gather, in a very real sense, that means that every single time we gather, we are admitting that we're sinners. We're admitting that we're complicit societal structures of sin. And when we refuse to admit that, when we are silent in the face of these sinful social structures, we make these kinds of structures into a sort of God and baptize that God in our own churches. So today, as we take communion together, I want to lead you in a, a time of communion like we always do. But I want to today invite you to reflect on your communion from this perspective. How has Christ, by his sacrifice, by his body and his blood, called you to be redeemed, not just as an individual, not just in your own personal heart, but how has he called you to be a redemptive element in our society? So on the night that he was betrayed, Lord Jesus took bread and today I have a little bit of sourdough from my pantry. Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it. which was the custom in the Jewish Seder Supper. And the Jewish Seder Supper was, of course, that celebration that helped Jews to remember that God is a God of liberation, that God is the God who freed them as a people. And So as Jesus practiced that same celebration of freedom and liberation, so too we as Christians come to this table and we break this bread, remembering that Christ gave his body to liberate us from those structures of sin. And he broke it and said, this is my body. Each time you eat it, remember me. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup with the fruit of the vine, the wine that represented the blood that was shed in Egypt and spread on the doorposts so that God's people could finally be free from their captivity, finally be free from their oppressors. And he said, this is my blood poured out for your forgiveness, for your liberation. Each time you drink it, remember me. Amen. My friends, I hope that you are staying safe. I hope that you are staying healthy and well. Thank you for joining us today for worship. and I pray that God would go with each one of us and give us the courage to speak out, to learn more, to take action for those who are in need of liberation today.